I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 1. As we consider uh, this next portion here of this chapter. The title of the sermon is, of course, Bad Company. It reminds us of Paul's own statement and warning to the church. The bad company corrupts good morals. And this here, following uh, the exhortation that the beginning of wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord, the very next lesson concerns the question of the company that you keep. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 to 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent your will. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, like the grave, let us swallow them alive and intact, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all manner of precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one common purse. My son, if they say these things to you, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back. Restrain your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And here's the common principle. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we consider your word this evening, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts by your Spirit's power that we might avoid the path of recklessness uh, and heed the counsel of our Heavenly Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think there's a perennial problem that everyone faces, be it young or old. It is the perennial problem of peer pressure. It is that great need and desire to belong and to fit in. And throughout our lives, from the nursery to the nursing home, competing voices vie for our attention and for our allegiance. I think it's partic particularly effective on the young, though it's not exclusive to the young. I think we all feel it, be it in the workplace or among our peers or friends, but particularly, I think it is felt... Uh, when you're young, that time in one's life where you are still trying to search out your own identity. You're not sure who you are or what your convictions are. You still haven't learned how to master these ever-fluctuating emotions, especially as the hormones are raging and raging and you don't know how to make sense of it all. For the young here, we see that the path of wisdom hinges on a simple question. To whom will you yield your consent? 
Whose counsel will you hear? Will you listen to your folks? Will you listen to your friends? Will you listen to your parents? Will your peers? We saw, as we saw last week, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, keeping his commands. Well, the fifth commandment says this to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. And what we see in our passage this evening, it regards the pleas of a father to his son, beckoning him to heed his father's voice over and against the folly of feigned friends. You see that there's a threefold structure to the father's plea here. As he repeats three times, my son, my son, my son, verses 8, 10, and 15. And that gives us uh, the structure for this particular passage. So first we'll consider the father's instruction in verses 8 and 9. Secondly, we'll consider the matter of temptation in verses 10 to 14. And then finally, we'll contemplate the destination of folly and the wicked in verses 15 to 19. So instruction, temptation, and destination. Well, just as the Olympics have wrapped up this past week, uh, I think many of us have either watched uh, the portion of the Olympics live or at least uh, reruns or uh, highlight reels on the news or on YouTube. Uh, One of the most... um, awe-inspiring moments of the whole uh, thing is to see the award ceremony towards the end where the, the medals are awarded. It used to be olive wreaths, these little garlands wrapped around one's head in the ancient world. Now they are uh, medallioned necklaces, symbols that confer dignity for one's strength in victory in athletic events. Consider the great honor that the military bestows on war heroes for their extraordinary acts of valor. It is an ancient custom, one that we see even in Scripture itself. Genesis chapter 41, Joseph, in light of his wisdom, warns Pharaoh that famine is coming and offers counsel to Pharaoh on how to navigate the coming storm. And Pharaoh actually heeds the counsel of Joseph, and on account of Joseph's wisdom, he is exalted to be the right-hand man in the kingdom. And as a symbol of that dignity, as a symbol of that honor by which he has been exalted through his wisdom, and the Pharaoh puts a necklace on Joseph's neck. Same exact thing happens to Daniel when he issues the warning to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. Men, two men here who are extolled for their wisdom are exalted and given a seat of honor and dignity. It's a symbol of beauty, right? We live in an age in a world where fashion magazines dictate where beauty and strength lie. But right out of the gate, Solomon tells his son that true beauty is found in wisdom. It is like a necklace. It's not just like a pretty necklace that you get at JCPenney. This is the idea of of an honor that has been conferred upon you by another. Like a graceful garland or a wreath on one's head. 
demonstrating that you have been given the crowning achievement, not for your own strength or agility, but by your own but by heeding the voice of wisdom. Wisdom brings its own reward that can neither be bought or sold. And so Solomon says, do you, do you want this in your life? Here is where true beauty and strength are found. It is found in heeding the instruction of your father. And now the father, King Solomon, speaking to his son, uses language that echoes the Shema of Deuteronomy. What was the Shema? Hear, O Israel, hear now the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now listen to the instruction, literally the Torah of the Lord. This is the name that is attributed to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the instruction that God gives His people. And now Solomon says nearly the same identical language. Hear, my son, listen to the instruction, quite literally, listen to the Torah of your father and mother. In other words, heed our counsel, for by it you will be exalted in due time. This is the race that is to be run. This is the path to tread. It is the path of wisdom. It is the same path that we had seen in Psalm chapter 1, who does not walk in the path of sinners, but walks the path of the righteous. So what counsel do you give your son? What counsel do you give your daughter when the hormones are still raging? When one is in the prime of their life with all their vigor is in full force and they still do not know how to possess or even process what he or she feels. Doesn't know how to respond uh, to uh, the, the surging emotional tide uh, that they feel in their own chest. I think we all look back on uh, our lives as teenagers, and sometimes you think, what counsel would I give myself if I were to find a time machine and go back in time? What wisdom would I give myself at the age of 15, 16, 17 years of age? Well, here Solomon gives wise counsel regarding the realities of temptation, beginning here in verse 10. He says, my son, if sinners entice you. Think about that word to entice. What is it to entice? It is to try to win or persuade somebody by appealing to their senses. To use something to try to gain their consent to go a particular way. There's a, uh, the, the word entice kind of gives the connotation of some type of seductive uh, component to it. I think the first thing we need to recognize when Solomon is using this language is that there is, in fact, a real allure to temptation. It's like the, the, the shiny little bait you attach by your hook when you go fishing, where the fish goes, oh, something shiny. Not realizing that the bait, the bait has been set, the trap is being laid. Uh, do not follow the allures, those things that entice you. 
But I think we would do well to recognize first that there is a real allure to temptation. We shouldn't pretend that this isn't a big deal, that this, that our hearts don't feel this particular pull. I think the important question to ask is what's the draw? Why are these temptations so alluring? I think it is only then that we begin uh, to uh, plan a counterattack for the ways of the enemy. If you know your heart is drawn away by you know, X thing, then you know the very things that you should avoid, the very things that you should learn uh, to reckon with in your own heart, recognizing you know, we all have sinful hearts. We all have hearts that lead us astray. Here in verses 10 to 14, Solomon highlights the real pull that peer pressure has on the human heart. At least six different things. I think the first thing, we see the big draw. And again, recognizing here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, 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 a cohort of people, a gang, a posse, a group of friends, whatever it is you want to call it. They say to this bucking young bronc, you know, this teenager, hey, why don't you join us? Here is the first temptation, a sense of belonging. I think what's striking is the contrast here. That uh, these alleged friends present themselves as an alternative community to the home. That's the rivalry that's being established here. Are you going to listen to uh, uh, your father Solomon, or are you going to listen to the voice of these nameless alleged friends? These friends who want to say, come with us, you'll have a place to belong. You don't have to worry about those authoritarian structures, though. You can be your own man. Verse 14 suggests some type of communal equality. Join us, we'll share all one common purse. Think of the allure this would give to the individual who who doesn't like being under the thumb and the authority of his parents. Oh, finally, I can break away from home and I can do the things that I want to do. Here is a group, here are some people that are giving me a sense of community where I don't have to listen to what my parents tell me what to do. And yet all the meanwhile, this son who is being duped fails to realize that the community that is seeking to draw him is no less authoritarian. They're still trying to mold and shape his will to do their bidding. They are trying to entice him. Here's a guy who's given the illusion that he can be his own man, and yet it is itself the great propaganda because all it is, he's, he's trading consent to do one thing for another. He is trading one master for another. Will he submit uh, to uh, his father wisdom? Or will he heed the counsel of fools? Second draw that's seen here is there's a sense of purpose and direction. The boy is being asked essentially to join a gang. But this does not seem to be a one-off heist nor does it seem to be their first rodeo. If you look at verses 11 and 12, notice uh, the, the language here. Verse 11, let us ambush this innocent man. That word there is, uh, in the Hebrew, it is singular. Let us ambush this innocent man without reason, uh, without cause. 
Let us steal his money. And yet in verse 12, he then says, Let us swallow them alive. In other words, this gang is saying, hey, look, let's get this guy, but this is part of a broader project that we are doing. The gang has invited the son to join them on their next hit. This is not their first. This will not be their last. This is their vocation, and they are enticing Solomon's son to be part of the hit parade where the cutthroat nature and the camaraderie all appeal to the boy's desire to belong, to the very desire that he has to um, cause a little havoc. It directs his focuses and energies. There's still a third draw that we see here. It's, we might call it a sense of power. Verse 12, let us swallow them whole. It's the goal of total subjugation. Here's an innocent party. Let us devour him. It's monstrous imagery. And yet it also connotes the idea, as one commentator puts it, of the perfect murder. Let us swallow them intact. Not a blood, not a drop or shred of blood will be seen at the crime. We'll totally get away with it. Here is a clean getaway. No hint, no shred of evidence of a malicious deed. You can gain the whole world and still not be accountable for the things that you have done. We have found the perfect heist. Fourth allure, there's the promise of material reward and provision in verse 13. Let us murder this man and plunder his house. Here is a fun way to make a quick buck. And yet what we see, I think perhaps the image we might be having is a bunch of ragtag ruffians, you know, street thugs, Gangs. And yet, the imagery here evokes that these aren't simply some kind of -of run-of-the-mill street hoodlums. Notice the language here. Let us fill our houses with plunder. This doesn't seem to be a bunch of outsiders or street thugs. They are people in the community. Not only are they people in the community with their own homes, but they have multiple homes. This is not Butch and Sundance's hole-in-the-wall gang seeking shelter together. It seems as though these are men of affluence, all with their own homes, preying upon the innocent, seeking to exalt and expand their own collective influence in the community as they share one common purse. Some type of business collective preying upon the weak and the poor. In other words, the boy is being enticed by men of influence in society. He's being enticed uh, and alert. And isn't this what the king's son would be? It's not just a bunch of hooligans that would try to draw him in. It would be uh, uh, um, these men of influence trying to get another person of influence uh, into their inner circle. A chance to attain honor and notoriety that seemingly lasts, and that leads us to a fifth... um, Promise, a fifth draw, the promise of status. And finally, perhaps a sixth, an appeal to autonomy, a chance to live your life outside of the family home, outside of those natural connections that the Lord has given you. 
I think there's a real draw and appeal to these things. Think of the enticement, the promise of belonging, the promise of money or wealth or status, the promise to be your own man whose heart has not been tempted by these things. Temptations that appeal to the senses, that incite the lusts of a covetous heart. As 1 John 2 puts it, the passions of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, the battle here is a battle for the will. The centerpiece of this passage is this. My son, if sinners entice you, if they try to appeal to your senses, do not consent your will. See, that's the great danger to temptation, that the longer you contemplate the appeal, the longer you contemplate the enticement, the more and more the defenses of the will begin to be knocked down. Begins in the garden, when Eve saw and looked at the tree, that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was something to be desired to make one wise, It was only after then that she took and she ate. In Charles Bridges' commentary on Proverbs, he puts it like this, the tender conscience becomes less sensitive by every compliance. The great sin here is not simply going off and murdering the man. The great sin is not simply the plundering of somebody else's home. Here he says, my son, do not consent your will to these enticements. We'll see this even in chapters 5 and 6 with the forbidden woman. He says, my son, don't even think about the lips of the forbidden woman. Why? Because here we see a real honest assessment of temptation that sin begins in the heart Temptation goes for the long con. It is in it for the long haul. You might say no to the temptation the first time, but if Satan can get you to go, no, but maybe I'll think about it tonight. No way will I ever do that. And then you find yourself two o'clock in the morning lying in bed, and all you can think about is how great it would be if I would be able to consent to this particular sin and get away with it. All the defenses begin to fall. As James 1 says, sin begins as a seed implanted in the heart and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger till it gives birth to sin and ultimately to death. The Christian's task is to put sin to death even at the level of desire before it gives birth to full act. When we consider our own attitudes as young men or women and see the representative appeals that are given here in verses 10 to 14, I think it perhaps reminds us of our own battles against temptation. Who here doesn't struggle against the longing to belong somewhere? And how easy it is that after you want to belong to uh, allow your own convic- convictions to crumble as your uh, alleged friends begin to gossip about others uh, in the pew next to you. Consider the son's viewpoint in the face of these allures. Why shouldn't I consent to these things? 
Hiram offered money, notoriety, sense to belong, sense of power. Why should I not cast my lot in with the crowd? If you had a child who asked you this, why should I not give in to these foolish temptations? What would you say? How, what do you do to turn the young child, the youth, away from pursuing such empty promises? Well, we find our answer here in verses 15 to 19 where the father says to his son, he says, look, he says, I know these things appeal to you, but I want you to consider their destination and their end. There's a double entendre going on here when he says uh, in verse 15, do not walk in the way of them. On the one hand, to not walk in the way means something like this. Do not follow their lifestyle. Do not follow their course of action. And yet, on the other hand, what he begins to hint at is that course of action has an end point and destination. Do not go the same way as sinners because their way, their destination is destruction, death, and doom. See, there's this divine principle at play where the path of wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. To know that God will call every deed into account. And so here Solomon highlights that principle of divine retribution. Here is that word pun, uh, yet another word pun that he uses in the Hebrew. In verse 17, if you look at that, it speaks of the man, the hunter, who, who spreads the net in the sight of any bird. Quite literally in the Hebrew, there's a word there for bird, but Hebrew doesn't use that word. It says, the master of the wing. The possessor of the wing. And yet in verse 19, it says, such are the uh, ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. There's a contrast here between the bird and the man who follows his own folly. What Solomon is saying, what he's contrasting here is, he says, look, Even the birds at times will recognize the net that is laid out for them, the trap that is spread for them, and they won't get caught in it. And so the hunter seeks to entrap the bird in vain. And yet the same hunter won't see the same trap that is set before his eyes. He is a greater fool than the fowl. Here the hunter falls by his own trap. Here is this principle of divine retribution. The foolish friends may plan the course for their own lives, but they also set up for themselves their own demise. And so Solomon provides wise instruction for his young son. This is the center, central verb here in this passage. Hold back your feet from this path. Verse 15. ESV says, hold back quite literally, restrain. In other words, what we're seeing here is Solomon is teaching his own son the importance of learning to subdue his own errant will. Verses 10 to 14 says, look how your heart is being pulled in all of these different directions. My son, learn to bring your heart 
under control. Restrain your feet from pursuing evil. Even though that's the direction your feet want to go. This is learning to take control, to subdue those sinful emotions, to not be controlled by the raging impulses that course through your veins. Solomon recognizes there's a real draw to these temptations, and yet despite its allures, these allures that appeal to one's own sinful heart, he says, bring your will into subjection to the Torah of your father and mother. To learn to set wisdom before you as the course of action that you take. You hear it all throughout society, pop culture today. Follow your own heart. Here Solomon says the exact opposite. Solomon says, restrain your own heart, for it is sinful. Subject your heart to the instruction, to the Torah of the Lord. And notice and recognize that if you follow the path of these foolish friends, that the temporary gains they may give are not worth the price that is to be paid over the long haul. I think there's a certain significance that this has for all of us. Perhaps we can start with parents. There's the temptations our kids face that have a real draw. I think we would do well to recognize that for our teenagers, for our kids, that there is a real desire to fit in and to belong, and there will be people trying to compete and vie for the affections of our children. To try to allure them with an alternative community, to try to provide them with the thrill of the chase, to make a name for oneself, to no longer be under the thumb of somebody else's authority. Think of the impact that this has on young men. That there's a definite psychological influence that comes with what we might call the gang mentality. I think it's a sober reminder that perhaps we're not as autonomous as we think we are when we are acting in a rebellion. We're not actually being our own man. We're simply seeking to be conformed to the image of somebody else. You think of Augustine in his confessions. He, uh, as 16, 17-year-old, joins a group of friends and they go and they decide to steal a bunch of pears. And he says he loves it. But then he begins to ask why. Because then he realizes, I hate pears. Why am I stealing this? And yet he recognizes that there's a certain draw that's to be found, maybe not even in the deed itself, but in the fact that he now belongs to a group of other people that give him a sense of belonging But this is not simply a problem for young men. It's also a temptation for young girls. It's good to remember that the knife is not the only thing that can cut deep. Our words cut deep. Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words most certainly hurt. I'm not sure if anything could compare to the wickedness of a squad of gossipers in high school. Do you remember what it was like to sit at the lunch table to know that there's a group of people sitting three tables over laughing and snickering and talking about you? 
people who form their own clique and set the standard for who is cool and who is not, for who is in and who is out. And if the invitation, the temptation is offered to you to be part of that inner circle, think of the allure and the enticement that that draw brings. All you have to do is abandon your convictions and begin to gossip and slander and murder the reputation of those around you so that you can continue to be part of this inner circle, this inner ring. Alter your behavior. Cut down others with the tongue, with whispers, slanders, and lies. But the temptation doesn't stop there. It's not restricted to uh, boys or girls, not even restricted to the young and the poor. Here, the older and affluent, as we saw in verses 10 to 14, here are men who are seeking to increase their wealth and status. And it appears they already have. They have established a stronghold within the kingdom and the community. One of the things that we're going to see in the coming months is that Proverbs concerns itself with the just society. What does it mean for society to pursue justice? Even in consideration, to some respect, of economics. Here, Scripture condemns what we might call anachronistically those communistic communities that attempt to plunder the wealth of others by violence. You see that in verse 14. Come, let us share a common purse. But I think it also likewise condemns those cutthroat business practices that seek to destroy the lives of the innocent by unjust gain because they are pursuing to plunder others to make them poor so that they might themselves grow rich through unjust gain. Here are men of violence. Here are men who will use whatever business tactic they can to increase their wealth, even if it amounts to murder. You see, this is, in fact, the central principle of the passage. If the central uh, action is the command in verse 15, do not consent to your will, in verse verse 19, we're actually given the summary principle of what is being taught here. Consider the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. Quite literally, consider the ways of the man who uh, achieves wealth by violence. What is his destination? Well, the man who does this, this act, it takes away the life of its possessors. To pursue this path, you might lay lay the trap for someone else, but in fact you are laying the trap for your own demise. Here then is the lesson then for male and female, young and old, rich and poor, conservative and liberal alike. These are in fact temptations common to all. It reminds us that we should have a healthy understanding of fallen human nature, that these things carry a real appeal and they have real consequences. And so we must learn the art of self-restraint. One of the spiritual virtues of Galatians 5 is what? Self-control. To recognize temptations when they come, why it is that these temptations are so alluring and to resist temptation and follow the path of wisdom, to heed the voice of your Father. 
See, Paul reminds us as he writes to the church of Corinth that there is not a single temptation that is not common to man. What does he mean by that? Paul is simply saying we're all tempted by the same things. Let's stop pretending that temptations don't tempt us. And yet at the same time, there is no temptation where God will not leave us without a way out. Where He will not provide us with a way to bear under that time of trial and testing. This passage reminds us, much like we've been looking at in Sunday mornings over the past few weeks, we cannot resist temptation unless the Spirit aids us. And unless we begin to mortify those sinful desires, that we not even consent to their allures and our very thoughts, we need to recognize that the battle for the will begins in the mind and in the affections. It's a battle for your consent. This is not merely a message for those out there. If we are honest, again, we find the struggle, all of us, even as Christians, struggle with these same temptations, to have financial stability, whatever the cost, to find personal acceptance. And although these desires are not necessarily bad, they can exert great pressure to have you conform to the folly of this age. It's a folly himself, a folly that Isaiah himself addresses to the church. In Isaiah chapter 59, when he says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear dull that it cannot hear. However, your iniquities have separated you from your God. And we might ask, what sins are those? And Isaiah then quotes this passage in Proverbs, or at least echoes Solomon's own words here. What sins have separated you from your God? You, as the church, your feet run to do evil. They are swift, swift to shed innocent blood. Desolation and destruction are in your highways. And as Isaiah looks upon the nation of the people of God, he sees that the nation as a whole has failed to heed Solomon's counsel. And before we are led to despair, it is at this point that Isaiah says that the Lord Himself noticed this. And what was the Lord's response? The Lord Himself has brought salvation. And He shall come that the nations might fear the Lord. In other words, the Lord brings and sends His Messiah that the nations might learn the beginning of wisdom which is the fear of the Lord. Christ Himself has come not only to deliver us and pardon us of our sins, but to teach us the path of wisdom. He does so by giving us His Spirit and giving us His counsel that we listen to His Word and subjugate our own errant hearts to do the will of our Heavenly Father who beckons us to walk the straight and narrow because any other path, wide as it may be, is a path that leads to destruction. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. Uh, we ask that You would give us vigilant hearts uh, and hearts of strength to subdue our passions, that we might subjugate our whole self to the duties that You have commanded 
to us to do. With the power of your Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.